they were so bowled over, these artists, with the warmth of the welcome of the people. And they couldn't wait to get back because they loved being around us a lot as well in the club, you know. They were cocooned into this industrial area. And, and the audiences were special because they weren't spoiled. Welcome back to the Town Sounds Oral History Podcast. This episode is entitled Your Local Venue, spaces dedicated to music in Kirklees. And it was Maureen Prest who opened up the episode by talking about the welcoming and friendly audiences of the Batley Variety Club. In today's episode, I'll visit five different music venues in Batley, Slawit, Huddersfield and Homefirth and speak to the people that have helped bring music into these spaces and enabled the magic to happen. The venues in my list today vary in size and age, in location and in fame. From the historic Batley Variety Club that hosted some of the biggest names in show business in the 70s, to the Watershed in Slawit that only started hosting live events in the autumn of 2023 and has a capacity of only 60 or so. Although the episode title leans on the venues themselves, this is a story as much about the people who run those spaces. The episode will capture the stories of the promoters and venue managers in the area. Up against all odds, we'll hear how passionate promoters produce a thriving live music scene in these post-industrial hills and how these venues are key to our local communities. Noah Burton. In terms of organising the events, you know, I'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to how I like things done a certain way. So if I'm putting the event on, I can be in control of how it's put together, the timings, all that kind of stuff. I can be quite particular about sort of how I feel like events should go. Like in episode 13, I've had to move away from the original archive interviews for this podcast episode. Instead, I went out and talked to some new guests. We'll be joined by promotions manager of the Batley Variety Club and author of King of Clubs, Maureen Prest, owner of the Homefirth Picture Dome, Peter Carr, creative producer of the Watershed, Slower, and ex-manager of Small Seeds, Huddersfield, Noah Burton. And we'll also hear a couple of people talking about the reggae venue of the 70s and 80s, Ben Street. They are Donovan Brown and Balbir Singh Upal. The episode will be peppered with bits of music as well, mainly from local artists, so listen for them and make sure you follow them and support your local independent musicians. Here's our first track by young local indie band, Long Island. From the start, I was caught up on the way that you are. Will I ever learn? We were dancing past the point of no return. If you start to drown, We start the story of today's episode in the 1960s when James and Betty Corrigan designed and started building the Batley Variety Club after visiting Las Vegas to research how clubs worked for the big stars of the day. Already a ludicrous idea, things got even more tooth and nail when the authority inspectors came to check out the foundations and measured that they were a foot too close to the road. The Batley Council's decision to force the construction to correct the issue set the project back. But James, who came from a travelling fairground family and was incredibly hard-working, had already booked the first few acts to play at the club. Floodlights were installed and the construction workers were commissioned to work day and night in order to finish the club on time. 
My guest, Maureen Prest, was the promotions manager. She recalls that on the club's opening day, the paint wasn't even dry. I met the glamorous, funny and charming Maureen in Batley train station on a clear, blue, sunny winter morning, and she regaled stories of the world's greatest entertainers coming to a small, unknown, foggy town nestled in the Yorkshire hills. Here she is now, talking about the proprietor of the club and dear friend of hers, James Corrigan. You know, he did so much and he was very, very special. Because, you know, there are things in people you don't know are there until you're faced with, this is it, you know, sink or swim. Life's an adventure. And he improved himself because he knew that, I mean, let's face it, fairgrounders, and they were the bottom rung of society. I suppose he dusted himself down and thought, right, I don't want to carry on doing this for the rest of my life. He gave so much, and do you know, I think he got very little in return. And it wasn't just the club, really, when I think about this area. I don't think at the time we all appreciated just how good the whole thing was. But it wasn't just for the club, really, when you think about it. It was a social engineering that I never realised until later in life when I've looked back on it. This area, it was all mills. It was just a cacophony of soot and smoke and chimneys belching out. And so there was no glamour. Girls and women were walking about with curlers in their and headscarves and, and overalls and there was no, it was just not glamorous at all. But once the club opened and they had somewhere to go and some something to get dressed up for, they were born-again princesses. They turned up in long dresses and they were rubbing shoulders with the stars. I mean, you just could not make it up. At all. It was a feel-good factor. Mm-hmm. It was just something special that they'd never had before. Back then, they were so downtrodden and they were the hardest-working people anywhere, you could think. And they were so deserving of the best. And I think that's what he thought, you know, well, let's give them the best. So the people of Batley got the very best. Tom Jones, Roy Orbison, Eartha Kitt, The Bachelors, Vera Lynn, Shirley Bassey and Louis Armstrong, just to name a few. And Maureen has many funny stories to accompany the memories of this remarkable landmark. So here she is again, talking about some of the acts the club did pull, and one that it didn't. For licensing reasons, we can't feature any of these big names and their music on the podcast. So instead, we have something better. Local musicians that you might not have heard of before. So whilst Maureen talks, we'll listen to the classy, local, up-and-coming singer-songwriter, Penny, and her song, Unfold. Kiss me with your fingertips and tickle me with your toes. So he decided that of all the artists, he had to have his favourite one, and that was Dean Martin. So he and Bernard went to America and made an appointment to see Dean Martin's manager. And he said to James, point on the map. 
where Batley is. Well, James, try as he may to find Batley on the map, couldn't find it, he was so embarrassed. And then, <laughs> as if that wasn't enough, he offered £40,000 for him to appear for a week at Batley. And the manager said to James, my boy wouldn't get out of bed to P dot dot S S for that money. <laughs> so he went out of his office and burned with his tail between his legs. <laughs> and when they got outside, they couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> well, Shirley Bassey was the biggest draw of all. She was the most fabulous entertainer. She had so many needs, I can't tell you. She had to have the bars closed while she was performing. No food could be served while she was on stage. Or she wanted hooks and special arrangements for all the gowns, you know, the stage gowns. Betty and I tried them on. We did it during the day when she wasn't there. <laughs> so, we, so we went into the dressing room. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm looking out while Betty tries these you know, fantastic dresses. I mean, you've never seen anything like it in all your life. Like when Louis Armstrong came, part of his contract was he had to have a fresh bowl of fruit every day. I mean, everything we saw of him, he was this big, huge man. And when he came to battle, he'd slimmed. And so it was the diet why he needed the bowl of fruit. And what happened was he had done these um, diet sheets, uh, pieces of paper, because he thought, well, people will want to slim. And I can, he can hand these things out. And, and stapled on the corner of these... At diet sheets was this, well, it looked like um, looked like tea leaves really, but it wasn't. It was called Swiss Chris, and it was a herb, and it was this slimming aid that made you slim. So we all thought, oh, we'll have a go at this, and you to make it as if you were making a cup of tea, and so you put this stuff in a cup and poured your boiling water on and drank it. But what you forgot to tell us, it was a laxative. <laughs> so we're all having to run to the loo within <laughs> ten minutes of drinking it. And this is how we'd lost all the weight right. with the fruit <laughs> and this Swiss Chris. <laughs> no, I was so impressed with Louis Armstrong because again, you know Sam, I mean he was a he was a, a, a little kid who was never given any advantages in life, was never educated, he couldn't spell. And so when he came off stage, there were queues and queues of people wanting his autograph. And he said to me, Maureen, will you come and stand and spell for me? I mean, he could have just written his name, couldn't he? Do you know what I'm saying? But he didn't want to do that because he loved people and he wanted to make it personal to them. So I had to stand there spelling their names. 
so he could write a personal message to them. There's so much more to tell about this special time in this amazing, unique place. We couldn't fit it all in this podcast and Maureen didn't give too much away. But if you are tantalised enough by this incredible local history, you can find out more in her book, King of Clubs, all about the life of James Corrigan and the decade in which all the world knew about Batley. And on the 16th of May 2024, there'll be a big free event at Zucchini's Restaurant in Batley. The British Music Hall and Variety Society are unveiling a blue plaque for James Corrigan to honour what he did for show business. And there will likely be a celebrity or two there, and almost certainly journalists and TV cameras. So get yourself down. It started in 1967 and closed in 78. Yeah, he went bankrupt and lost everything completely. I think I was extremely lucky because it's a story that refuses to go away. The story is so big and so incredible. It never loses its luster, doesn't this story of Battle Variety Club? It's a, sto- it's, a, it's a legend. It's a rags to riches, back to rags, but there is a twist at the end of the book and I'm not going to tell you what that is. But the book has been really successful and they're doing a TV series. Uh, Joe Ainsworth, who wrote Holby City, um, but he's collaborated with me uh, to do a TV series. During the 1960s, our next local venue was still a cinema. A young Peter Carr would go there to watch films, but little did he know that one day he'd end up owning the place. I met Peter at the venue in question during his working hours, which seemed to be almost everyone that's granted. Now in his 60s, he's considering retiring, but has been saying that for a few years, so we'll see. For this interview, I followed him round the space whilst he continued to work. You'll be able to hear it in the shifting reverb. We then entered his office, where he was sorting tickets for future gigs, UK Foo Fighters and Billy Bragg, among others. Here he is talking about his introduction to the Home Valley Theatre and his formative years in Home Firth. Whilst he talks, we'll hear local musician Here's the Steeple performing Rascals. Around the rugged rocks, the ragged rascals run Mocking stocking feet all howling at the sun Their work is never done We used to play football on the street on a Sunday morning Two coats, goalposts And if you saw a car you stopped and looked at it thinking Oh, a vehicle and they not, It was Tumbleweed Town in the 60s in here you know, for, <laughs> Yeah, so... Um, you could buy it, you could rent a house for 10 bob a week, which is 50p now, because nobody wanted them. My stepdad could have bought a row of houses in 1972-ish for a thousand quid. There were five of them. Anyway, nobody wanted them, so they demolished them. There's a lot more forward-thinking people living in here now. So it's, it's progressive now, whereas before it was just a bounce-along little village and everybody knew everybody and gossip was dreadful and all that kind of thing. Yeah, 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 well, it hit me when I first walked in here 25 years ago, yeah. no longer. I used to come in here as a kid in the 60s, you know what I mean, and watch movies, so. Purpose-built cinema entertainment building in 1912. Yeah, I used to like coming here a bit of a treat on a Saturday afternoon, you know, get away from there. I used to live at Nook Pub, that's my family's place. They're still there, my family, they've been there, oh, we've been there 60 years in September this year, a long time. Mm-hmm. 
we, we, I wanted a building that could put bigger gigs on. I had a club up the road that could do bits of gigs, a bar that did bits of gigs, and I occasionally did gigs at the local Civic Hall. When I was 12, I used to sell tickets for the guy that put the gigs on at the Civic Hall. Peter leased the space in 1998 and purchased it in 2003, and when he took it on, it had fallen into some disrepair. Using his skills as a promoter and a builder, he turned the place into what it is today. A new name was granted to the venue too, taken from the old name of Homefirth's first cinema on Dunford Road, the Picturedrome. Here is Peter talking about that process. Two, two previous builders have been in started it and left it in the right poor state. Uh, we, were, we, we rewired it, replumbed it, put toilets in, put a, a, a cinema projection system in, it's made it presentable. But I am officially a builder and I'm in, build, I'm in building mode now. We did all the major works ourselves, we couldn't do everything ourselves because there's just you know, too much to do. Mm. You know, so there's a team of people in, plumbers, sparkies, joiners, horrible, out, you know, horrible cost. No, the first night we opened as a film cinema, we took seven quid, two tickets at 3.50. Horrible feeling. Because the film companies wouldn't give me any new new material, so we put on a Wesley Snipes film that just didn't attract anybody. You know, so that was just the way it was. That's just the way it is. It's a, a risky business, is this job. Mm. You know, I put gigs on that have uh, scary amounts of money. You know, I put one gig on once, it cost me 18,000, just for a night. And you've got to do it. If you're not prepared to do it, get out of the business. It's as simple as that. You know, you've got to have the good music sells live every time. So the tributes are a massive industry now. That without tributes, theatre companies and music venues in Britain would collapse. Because mm-hmm. you know, that's the quality of the gig. You know, you get all the official fans going to the official gigs. Who will come to the a tribute gig? and have as much fun, mm-hmm. you know, if not better, because it's, you know, it's all a bit tongue-in-cheek to some extent. We've got to go back to 1996. I was putting gigs on at the local club thing that we had that could fit 150 people in it. I embargoed an, a particular artist so that no other promoter in the north of England could put him on at a venue in, say, Leeds, Sheffield, Manchester. And I got a phone call off a guy, uh, rang me up and said, would you mind lifting that embargo? And I went, no, I'll let me sell out first and then I will. So jump forwards 20 years, back to the early 2000s, I was still embargoing the gigs and I got a phone call off the same guy 20 years later. And he says, would you mind lifting that embargo? He says, no, not until we've got sold out. So I embargoed quite all the gigs I used to put on, I used to embargo them, which were annoying the promoters up the north. So they rang me up and said, we're going to make you an offer you can't refuse. And I said, all right then. So we had a meeting and I accepted, because it basically what it did was, they took all the shows off me. I, I stopped doing it. And they've got a fully fledged team that do it every week. <laughs> so it was a lot simpler for me to get them in. More, I, were, I were happy doing, say, four gigs a month. They're happy doing eight, nine or 10 or more, if it's a, you know, if the artist's available. I suspect that we're probably their best operational venue in, the, in England. Uh, one of my favourite shows was uh, Robert Cray back in whenever it was, 2003. I took a big hit on him. Broke even, but I just thought, no, Robert Cray is cool. I always liked listening to him as a teenager. And uh, that's, the way, that's why I put him on, because I thought, if I can get him here, that just ticks a big box for me. And then, uh, I don't know, there's been loads of good gigs. Ocean Colour Scene were a great gig. 
Sophie Ellis Baxter came, she'd been a few times. The first time she came, it was Food and Drink Festival weekend in North Perth. And she was just an absolute darling. You know, she went out for a walk with her in the streets and packed. You know, having photographs taken with all the foody, drinky type of people. And she was just a great, she was just a great person. Can't knock her for one minute. And she'd been back several times. Uh, Katie Tunstall came back. Kate comes, you know, been a few times. She's a great gig. Uh, but some of the smaller shows, like there's a, a, a band that we have called the Original Black Diamonds, they can provide as good as entertainment as anybody can. You know, and they're local guys, so it didn't have to be the big names that tick the box. But there's, there's, there's some amazing musicians around the Home Valley area. The number of musicians around here that are young and local are, are just amazing. And that's all for the progressive parents who are pushing them in the, in, the, in the right direction, not necessarily in the parents' direction, in the direction that kids want to go in. I asked Peter about the future of the venue. Well, yeah, we bought in lockdown, we did a full refurb here, and it was just hemorrhaged hundreds of thousands of pounds. We went green, for example, our carbon footprint uh, were aiming towards zero over the next couple of years, that's, that's the intention. The future is to get some more air source stuff in and some solar panels in so that we can um, call ourselves one day carbon neutral. But that will, probably won't be me, it'll probably be my son that pursues that. The Picturedrome has a long life ahead of it, with Peter's son and daughter now working there too. And the venue goes from strength to strength. The box office was converted to a bar and smaller venue about 10 years ago, and an open mic still runs there two nights a month. But eventually, times change, and even the best and most wonderful spaces end up closing. That is the case with our next venue on the list. For this, we must move back in time to the 1970s. If you are a regular listener to this podcast series, you might note that we did cover this venue in our episode about sound systems. But now we have a few more words on this well-renowned nightclub. Venn Street Nightclub was one of the most popular reggae venues in England at one point. But it wasn't just a space for reggae, it was a former theatre and occasionally used by the Sikh community for special occasions. As everyone in town knows, it was owned by the Buller Brothers, who leased the space to the West Indian Association and later sold it to them. Mandeep Samra spoke to the nephew of the Buller Brothers, Balbir Singh Upal, about Venn Street. You can hear more of the interview on YouTube, but here he is talking briefly about the space. Whilst he talks, we'll hear a track from the marvellous Jordan Higo. And I mean it with all of my heart And that's why she's my, 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 my My only lady That's why she's my, 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 my only lady. Street was um, uh, rented out by my family to the West Indian community. And that, going back to, I think, 1967, somewhere down there. Venstreet belonged to my uncles, the, the Wooler family. We used to have our kind of annual holidays here every year and we used to stop here for two or three weeks at a time. That time I was fairly young and obviously it was limited in terms of going to nightclubs and stuff like that. But I knew about Venn Street and I knew it was a very, very popular venue for the West Indian community. I mean, I know my family used Venn Street three or four times during those periods. And having said that, weekends it was mainly the West Indian community and Saturday nights was very, very busy. I remember going there as a young 
man. The amount of sound equipment they used to have, you know, these massive speakers. I just couldn't, I didn't believe, <laughs> couldn't believe the eyes. They were so huge. Devo General was a regular attendee of Venn Street and also took his own sound system there from time to time. You can hear him talking more about sound system in episode 7, but here he is explaining the importance of Venn Street and why it ended up in a town like Huddersfield. Whilst he talks, we'll hear from his sound, Armageddon, playing at Silver Sands, which was the official name in 1984 for what everyone knew as Venn Street. Fen Street was the main social hub um, for Huddersfield uh, as, as an adult nightclub. My, my vibration's too deep, cause I, I see everything, but I go there for the music, me, and the meditation, what I hear, and I, and I study the music. Some people go, and, and they're there to meet their friends and have a good time, didn't hear as much music. Did you hear that tune? No. When did it play? Okay, no problem. There's people there just actually on a social vibe. It's a nightclub. Everybody enjoyed themselves. That place is not closing till three o'clock sometimes. Half of the people that went to Vince Street in Huddersfield were family, linked to next family, friends of friends. So it was one big family in Vince Street, especially with the Huddersfield crowd. I'm sure most people will tell you come from out of town that, that Vince Street always made them feel welcome. Or I should say the Huddersfield people always made them feel welcome. There was loads of international artists. You know, if you, you, know you could spin a, spin a disc with all the top stars. They've all been there, you know, Gregory, Dennis, Burning Spear, um, Aswad, Michigan and Saint, it was a uh, General Saint and Clint Eastwood. The, the list got Wailing Souls, uh, Freddie. Everybody came to Venn Street. If you was a top artist in the 70s, you came to Venn Street. Once you'd done London, your next stop was generally Birmingham or Venn Street. Because Venn Street, as I said earlier, was it supported Leeds would come. People from Manchester would come, people from Bradford would come, Sheffield would come, because Huddersfield is that little central spot. But it, they chose Huddersfield for the same reason that when Venn Street was up and running, it was easy access for people to get to, without being pressured by going into a town full of violence and ignorant people. As we've heard, even when live music was at its most prosperous, owning and running a venue could be a precarious venture. These days, the difficulties in town centres, challenges in the hospitality industry and the ever-shifting face of live music mean that many venues are open purely out of love and kept alive with volunteer hours, people working over the odds and chunks of money from generous donors and government funding. And yet, it doesn't stop people from having a go. The Watershed is the latest place in Kirklees to open its own music venue, and I went along to the space to talk to organiser of events, Noah Burton. I'll let him introduce himself a little bit first, just in case you don't know him. Yeah, I mean, I got into doing events really young, if I think about it, even going back to, like, junior school age, where I'd written some songs and I'd made a band, and how are we going to get gigs? We'd play at school, or we could hire the local village hall and sell tickets to all our mates and stuff, and this was, like, last year of junior school, I think, so already had that kind of uh, promoter mindset. So I did a few of those actually throughout high school as well, where we'd sort of put on our own events, hire a hall and get our mates' bands to support and all that sort of stuff. 
Whilst working as a musician in bands like Extracurricular and Easy Stride, Noah continued to host events around Huddersfield and Wakefield. I've been lucky really, I think I've had a lot of creative control. I've, I've worked with people who've kind of given me the responsibility to deliver on my ideas. So I think that's, that's important to feel like your creativity can be, you know, boundless. You know, one of my first regular events that I put on when I was at college was called Beats and Pieces. It was like a hip hop open mic night. And that was, uh, that was really good. We used to do it on a Monday night, would you believe it, in Huddersfield. And uh, it was really busy and it did really well. And it sort of moved on to a weekend eventually. But that was when Small Seas was called Bar 120. Noah has a rich and interesting history of events organisation in the local area, including Onwards Festival, Friday Night Jive and Acoustic Revolutionaries. And we'll hear about his time at Small Seeds a little later, but first I wanted to know about the newest venue in Kirklees, at the Watershed. So here he is again. So the Watershed, it's a participatory art space. Um, we've been doing some sort of music tech workshops here in a, in a cool media suite that we've got some funding to do. Uh, there's a, a youth theatre that happens here, there's sort of arts clubs like Habdab that do sort of more making and craft work and that kind of stuff. Photography workshops that are starting, people can hire this basis for their own creative endeavours. It's really a lovely little hub that's in the centre of Slough. The main event that I'm programming at the moment is a monthly um, event called Sonar Sessions. It's a Sunday evening gig, more of a listening crowd, sit down audience acoustic instruments, things that translate well in this space, being a bit more of a bigger sort of hall. It's got to be captivating, whatever you're putting on. Um, you want an audience member to come and you know really feel like they're part of it and go away and tell people about it. Oh, I saw this amazing band. And, and kind of getting on the radar, I guess. It's The idea of Sonar Sessions is that we have an, more of an established uh, act and then we kind of have more of a local or an up-and-coming act that pairs with them. So that sort of discovery thing, uh, having that archive of uh, the events and being able to look back through it, I think that's really nice to have. So yeah, we've been doing that. We've been working with Caleb James Audio, who's been filming it and uh, putting together some really nice videos, making sure we capture the sound really nice. So uh, yeah, I like creating those archives and databases. In January and then throughout 2024, the last Sunday of the month, uh, there'll be a sonar session taking place. Uh, it's been really, really good. Really, you know, had a really good uptake. Slathwaite so seems to be a great place to put on things at the moment because there's a really nice community. People coming and, and exploring Slathwaite, a, a lovely idyllic village. Yeah, I mean, the music's the standout point. That's what it's all about. That's why we come for it. And we've had some, some great acts uh, in Hebel and uh, the Yorkshire Gypsy Swing Collective was the first event. two apps are on to be quite contrasting. Learning curve stuff, I mean it's always interesting working in a new space and although I've done things in the watershed in the past it's always been kind of workshops or you know video shoots or something. This was kind of like yeah utilizing the space trying to make it feel more of a venue. I kind of wanted to transform the space a little bit so we got some uh, banners designed by local artist Oliver Smith. Uh, he's a really good local artist, uses a lot of um, local inspiration um, and he made some cool sort of backdrop designs for us and we've got a little stage in and it's kind of morphed the space into feeling like a venue and that's the great thing about the watershed it's kind of the multi sort of faceted nature of the spaces here you can kind of you know swap and change them around and do different things in them 
So that was important, I think, for people to come in and go, oh, it feels like a venue in here now, um, and start to get that association with the watershed as a, a gig venue, um, which is a very new thing for us. And that's still something that I'm, I'm kind of trying to tweak and improve on. Yeah, we've got, got some exciting stuff coming up for sure, and uh, it's, all, it's all stuff that fits with what we're trying to promote, which is really good, captivating music um, that, you know, is, is pushing boundaries and, and new musical styles, fusions of music, and, um, and you know, just good quality performance as well, I think. That's the thing that's really come through in the performances. The level of musicianship that's on offer is just amazing. I'm blown away by it. Noah also used to programme the live music at Small Seeds in Huddersfield, and it would have been silly to ask him about the watershed without talking about Small Seeds. So here he is talking about the venue dressed up like a forest, and whilst he talks, we'll hear one of his bands, the Easy Stride Band, playing their song, Collider. With live music venues in general, I think Huddersfield's got a great scene and some really talented and amazing musicians um, work and reside here. It didn't matter who was playing, you just knew it was going to be a good night of live music. So it was always on a certain genre like funk, soul, world, that kind of thing. And you could just turn up, it was free entry, and you just go there because you knew it was good music. And I tried to sort of get something like that going in small seats, which are called Friday Night Jive. We had free entry, so it was like anyone could come. There was no barriers stopping people from accessing the night. And yeah, it was, I was kind of underwhelmed a little bit by the response because I thought this is going to go. What's, what's not to love here, kind of thing. I was expecting, I guess, liking Leeds, the student community to embrace it, to become everybody's favourite night out, and that didn't quite happen for me on that one. And I think that is a problem that's continuing, and a lot of venues are having that at the moment. And it's not to say that we didn't have successful times, you know, we've had some really great events uh, over the years in small scenes that have been sell-out shows and things. Yeah, I learned a lot during those times, I think. As we've heard in this podcast series, music is happening all over Kirklees all of the time. In episode five, I covered the tiny living room Mash It Up band who visit the houses of the community on Christmas Day. I found out all about the rock and roll and punk bands who toured Europe in episodes three and 11. In episode nine, I interviewed musicians from modern popular outfits still at it today. And we've heard about folk sessions, underground music that has migrated here, choral societies, brass bands, festivals, experimental music, happening sound systems and South Asian music. 
Music is happening all over Kirklees, and I've tried to cover a broad spectrum of it over the course of this series, but of course, much has been missed. In this episode alone, we would have loved to include the parish, for example, but the organisers were very, very busy, and a time couldn't be established to conduct an interview. Next month, we'll release our final ever episode. And for this episode, you can hear that broad spectrum played out in my favourite way. It's 28 different interviewees speaking all about the positive impacts of music on people's lives. From music as therapy, to music shifting people's consciousness, to it being a friend, a partner and a lifesaver. I hope you can tune in for it. In the meantime, please let us know what you think of the series by messaging us on Facebook or Instagram at Sam H Song or Let's Go Yorkshire. This was a Let's Go Yorkshire and Sam H Song production. The host and producer was Sam Hudson. The podcast has been supported by Kirklees Council, Kirklees Year of Music 2023 and the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Town Sounds explores the musical histories of Kirklees to uncover untold stories through the voices of local people living musical lives. For more information on this podcast, please visit musicinkirklees.co.uk